Well, excited to, uh, excited to get to gather with you this morning. Um, just two weeks left in our summer series, this week and next week. We've spent, if you're new or visiting, we've spent the whole summer taking a look at uh, the various attributes of God. And we've talked about how an attribute refers to a quality or a characteristic that belongs to someone. And what we see in Scripture is that God's attributes, they define and describe who He is, which means that they, they tell us who He is and what He is like. And what we said from the beginning is that it can be easy to think that studying the attributes of God is just like a really good thing for pastors and professors to spend time doing, right? It's kind of a, just this heady intellectual thing. But my goal throughout our series has been to show you how understanding what we believe about God has really deeply practical implications for our everyday lives. Because what we said from the beginning is that the truth is, is that what you believe, it always determines what you do. Our behaviors, they are an outworking of our, they're a tangible expression of our beliefs. And so when our actions and attitudes and perspectives are out of line with God's word and his will, then on a foundational level, that's because on, in some way we either don't know, we've forgotten or refused to believe something that's true about God. And so becoming the, the people that God's made us to be, it begins with beholding and believing in who he has revealed himself to be. And as we began to wrap up our series last week, we got to the, the final attribute that we're going to be covering in our series. And it's the attribute that we, we would talk about last week is God's sovereignty. And we saw how the truth is, is that resounding throughout the pages of Scripture is the proclamation that God is king. That, and, and that as king, he rightly rules and reigns, not just over some things or most things, but that he rules and reigns over everything with absolute power and authority from the huge and significant to the small and unnoticeable. He is in complete control of everything that happens. There's no gaps or limits or interference that, that prevents him from his authority and control in all things. We saw how he's sovereign over big things like the weather, the rise and the fall of nature, nations and leaders of the very course of history itself. We saw he's sovereign over small things like individual plants and animals. We saw he's sovereign over random things. He's sovereign over our lives from birth to death and everything in between. He's sovereign over sin and rebellion and evil, not causing it, but using it to accomplish his good plans and purposes, including most significantly the very death of his son. Which brings us to the last thing that we saw last week, that God is sovereign over salvation, over who comes to a saving faith in him. And like I said last week, the reason why I've saved this attribute for last is because when you look at that list of things that God is sovereign over, things that he rules and reigns over, it's not just hard to understand how all that works itself out, it's hard to trust Right? As Americans in particular, the idea that there is a being who has absolute power and authority over us, whose will we cannot bend to our own, it rubs us the wrong way. And that is especially true when it comes to thinking about God's sovereignty with regards to our salvation. And see, the idea that God might choose to save some but not others, that feels often to us unfair or unjust or just even illogical. And so as we approach our time together this morning, taking a look at what the Bible has to say about God's sovereignty with regards to salvation, I want to come to you first and foremost with a, with a tone and posture of graciousness and humility. There are more than a few people who might hold to a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation that are just plain arrogant and mean about it. If you're not on their team, then you're just an idiot or a naive simpleton, 
And I'll just say this on the front end. Don't let the pubescent maturity of people, right, and the way that they approach things, don't let that rob you of believing in a theological truth that their tone and posture might misconstrue. There's more here. Additionally, I want to be clear from the beginning that what we're talking about this morning, it falls squarely into what theologians would refer to as secondary issues, which means that where you land and what you believe the Bible teaches about the exact way that God's sovereignty with regards to salvation gets worked out, that that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you're a Christian. It's one of those issues where people who love Jesus and believe the Bible, brothers and sisters in Christ, often have differing convictions, and that's okay. And I'll just say this, if at the end of our time this morning, you think I'm crazy, you think I am totally wrong, right? Or you're like, I just don't really know what I think. I just want you to know, that's okay, right? We're not kicking you out, we're not ostracizing you. You don't even have to agree with me on this to be a member here at River City, right? It's not the one thing. In fact, if this is your first Sunday, it's probably helpful to know that in the five or six years since we've become a church, this is probably maybe the second time I can think of that we've actually even ever talked about this idea explicitly on a Sunday morning. It's not this issue we just keep hammering home. But with all that said, while while I want to be clear that what you believe about how God's sovereignty and salvation, the specifics about how that gets worked out, while that shouldn't be something that divides us, the reason why I want to take an entire morning, a whole sermon to spend time talking about that is because I'm not just convinced that God is completely sovereign with regards to our salvation, I'm convinced it's actually good news. It's good news that has the power to transform our lives in some really significant ways. I know it has for me. And it's been my prayer this week that as we behold and believe in a God who is sovereign over everything, including our salvation, that we might be both humbled and empowered to be and to become the people he's called us and made us to be. And so I can't wait to show you that this morning. And so with that in mind, let's pray. God, we're so grateful for our time together in your word and grateful to get to join you. God, let's be honest, I just feel like this sermon has been hard to write. It's been hard to know how to kind of communicate these truths in a way that is full of grace and humility and yet clear. And so, God, I just want to come to you again this morning before we begin and say, I need your help. God, I don't have uh, what I need apart from you to cause the good news of your sovereignty and salvation to be good news. And so I ask that you might graciously fill me with your spirit so that our time together is worthwhile and valuable. Help us to be characterized as a community by a posture and a tone of graciousness and humility, and yet at the same time of people who love the truth and who want to know you rightly, God. And so we ask, would you help us in all those things this morning? And might I pray, God, might you cause the good news of your sovereignty and our salvation to be good news. We pray these things. God, for our good and your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, let's just start here from the beginning. When we're talking about the idea of salvation, and specifically this morning, God's role in salvation, what we're talking about in salvation is about people coming to a spot where they've been forgiven and made right with God by repenting of their sin and putting their faith in the substitutionary work of Jesus on their behalf, right? It's an exercise of repentance and faith. And the question that we're trying to answer this morning is basically, how do people come to a point where they put their humble, repentant faith in the person and the work of Jesus? How do, we, how do people come to that spot? 
right? More specifically, the question that we're really answering is, what role does God play in people coming to a saving faith in him? What role does he play in that? And the first thing that I want to do this morning is I want to try to show you that saving faith in the person and the work of Jesus is a result of God choosing us, not us choosing him. It's a result of God choosing us, not us choosing him. See, when you survey what the New Testament has to say about God's role in salvation, you keep running into these three words over and over again. Election, predestination, and foreknowledge. And those are words that seem to make everyone really nervous and kind of skittish, right? Everyone's like, I don't really know what to do with all that. Right? I, 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 let's just not really talk about it, right? Or let's make it the only thing we ever talk about, right? But they keep coming up. Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians, and in chapter 1, he says this, Praise be to the God our, uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Right? He says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He goes on in verse 11 to say, In him we were chosen, in Jesus saying, we were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of, of his will. He goes on, Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, to describe how God works all things for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. He goes on, verse 29, to say, For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of, son, of his Son, that they might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. The Apostle Peter, when he's talking to Christians and writing to the Christians dispersed throughout Asia in 1 Peter chapter 1, he, he addresses them as God's elect exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, chosen to be obedient to Jesus. And so election and predestination and foreknowledge, they, they're these words that keep coming up over and over again. And the question is, you have to ask is, what do those words mean? What are the New Testament writers talking about when they, when they say those things? And like I mentioned earlier, this is an issue where people have different opinions about those things, right? And so we're not going to address every opinion there is this morning. In fact, what I want to just do is show you where we land as a church and then create a posture and tone of graciousness and humility with those that might disagree, Okay. So let's start with that word election, right? In those passages, you see this chosen language over and over again in the passages. In Ephesians 1, Paul is praising God because he chose us. Peter refers to Christians as God's elect, those who have been chosen. And what Paul and Peter and what those writers are communicating is the idea that God chooses who will come into a saving relationship with him. And that's nothing new. You see, from the very beginning of the Bible, God's revealed himself to be a God who chooses us. In Exodus chapter 33, God reveals himself to Moses. He gives him a glimpse of who he is, and he begins by saying that he is a God who will have mercy on who he'll have mercy on and will show compassion on who he'll show compassion. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses is reminding the Israelites about God's choosing them. This way he says, you are a people holy to the Lord God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people to be his treasured possession. 
And so the idea of election is the idea that God chooses who will come into a relationship with him. And, and what these passages and what the rest of Scripture makes abundantly clear is that God's choosing has absolutely nothing to do with us. A passage in Deuteronomy where Moses is reminding the Israelites about how they're God's chosen people, he goes on to say that, he says it this way, the Lord didn't set his affections on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest. He says, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept an oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, God loved you because he chose to do it. That's the reason. That's the whole reason. He loved you because he chose to. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 1 is that you can be sure that that is the case. You can be sure that God's love for you is a result of his choice for you because that happened, Paul says, before the creation of the world. Before you were ever born, before you could ever do anything right or wrong, God chooses people to come into a saving relationship with him. And that choosing doesn't have every, anything to do with us. It has everything to do with him. Again, Paul goes on in Ephesians 1. He says that God's choosing, he says, is in accordance with his pleasure and will for the praise of his glorious grace. You see, when God chooses to save people apart from any merit they have or any disqualification they might earn, what happens is that puts the focus on, the, on his glory and his grace. It puts all of the emphasis on him. See, if our salvation had anything to do with us, even if it had to do with the idea that God might know who would choose him and then he chooses back those people, then that would ultimately diminish his grace and his glory. And that brings us to that second word that we saw in the passage, that word foreknowledge. 1 Peter chapter 1, he says that we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, some people understand that word to kind of be the idea, like I was just talking about, that, that, God are, that God knows the future, and because he knows the future, he knows who will respond positively to him. And so it's kind of like this circular thing where God chooses those who choose him. And there are a number of problems with that. One, just like I mentioned earlier, but another is that... <clears throat> Is that the reality is that when the, when the Bible talks about God's know, God knowing people, it is almost never talking about an informational knowledge. Instead, when the Bible talks about God knowing people, it talks about a relational kind of knowledge. See, in the Psalms, when David talks about God searching and knowing him, he's not just saying that God knows everything about him. He's saying that God knows him relationally. In Matthew, when Jesus talks to his disciples about how and at the day of judgment there will be some who come to God who think they know him, but who God will tell them depart from him because he, he never knew them. He's not saying that God didn't know about those people. He didn't know they existed. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that God did not know them in a saving way. You see, one commentator puts it this way. When people know God in Scripture or when God knows them, it is a personal knowledge that involves a saving relationship. Therefore, in places like Romans chapter 8 or 1 Peter chapter 1, when it talks about those whom God foreknew, it's talking about those who, whom God long ago, before the foundations of the world, knew in a context of a saving relationship with himself. So before time began, God chooses who he will know in the context of a saving relationship. And that's what that last word predestination is all about. Simply put, predestined means to determine beforehand 
What these passages teach is that what God's determined beforehand is that those he's chosen might come to know him in a saving way. That those he's chosen, as Romans 8 put it, would be conformed to the image of his son, as Peter writes, would be obedient to Jesus. So it's not just that God chooses who he will know, it's that God chooses how people will respond to him. And the idea that all these three words are communicating together when it comes to God's sovereignty and salvation is the idea when it comes to salvation, God is the one who initiates and we're the ones who respond. He initiates and we respond. In fact, the truth is, is that you and I, we cannot even respond to him unless he initiates with us. Romans chapter 3, 11, Paul writes that there is no one who seeks God. In chapter 8, verse 7, he says, the mind that's governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Paul's words echo Jesus' own from John chapter 6 when he says that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them. See, the reality that Scripture paints for us is that apart from God breaking into our lives, and as Ezekiel 36 foreshadows, replacing our hard hearts of stone with soft hearts of flesh that are open towards Him, it's not just that we won't choose Him. It's that we can't choose Him. We'll never even want Him in the first place. Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are spiritually dead What all that means is that when people choose to put their faith in Christ, and let me be clear, from our perspective, we have to make a choice for him. We're going to get into that later, how those things work together, but it is a choice we have to make for him. What we're trying to say when it comes to God's sovereignty is that that only happens. Our ability to choose him only happens because God has first chosen us. And he's made us able, made our hearts able to respond to him. That's what the biblical doctrine of regeneration is talking about. Without God giving you a heart that can respond to him, that can see the gospel as good news, you can't even see him as good. In response to hearing Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel, we read in Acts chapter 13 how when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, they honored the word of the Lord. And it says this, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. It doesn't say all who believed were appointed to eternal life. It says all who were appointed to eternal life believed. See, even our ability to put our faith in Jesus is a result of God's foreknowing, electing, predetermining, sovereign hand. That's what I'm trying to show you this morning. And what I want you to see is not just that that's what I think the Bible teaches us, but I want you to see that that is actually good news. It's good news that changes us in some really profound ways. And the first thing that it does is that it humbles you to the floor. You see, when you realize that if you've come to a place where you've seen your sin for the mutinous rebellion that it really is, and, and you've put your place, your, your faith in the saving work of Jesus in, on your behalf, then the only reason that you have come to that point is because God in eternity past chose to direct his love towards you, that he chose to reveal himself to you and to cause the message of the gospel to be good news to your heart, not because of anything good that you might do or in spite of all the evil that you have done, And what happens is that humbles you deeply. 
See, when we deny God's sovereignty and salvation, we're going to be tempted to think about others who don't yet believe in Christ as, as fools, who are just ignorant or proud, that they, they can't see what we have seen. But when you embrace God's sovereignty and salvation, you lose any ounce of superiority that you have for anyone else. It is the great leveling field. It's all nullified. You see, you understand that you've been chosen not because of any superior qualities you might possess, but in fact, in spite of yourself. And you'll see, as one commentator puts it, that God's chosen people are not choice people. They're merely recipients of an unmerited and incomprehensible grace. You see, what will happen is you'll realize that the reason that you are a Christian is not because you are more spiritual or smarter or wiser or more humble than anyone else, but because God graciously kept pursuing you. And when you were running from him, he was running after you. And he initiates with you so that you can even respond to him. You see, but God's sovereignty and salvation, it doesn't just humble you, it comforts you and encourages you. All three of those passages I read this morning, Ephesians 1, Romans chapter 8, 1 Peter chapter 1, they're all written as encouragements to God's people. The idea of election and predestination, all that stuff, it, it, it stirs up all this kind of controversy and animosity amongst Christians these days. But it's meant to be an encouragement. It's written as an encouragement to God's people, right? In Ephesians, Paul's reminding Christians that, that the assurance that they can have of God's love and blessing isn't based on their decision for him, but it's based on his decision for them. And it's not the clarity or the strength of their faith that saves them, but it's God's clarity of decision for them. Over the years, I have met so many people who are insecure and unsure about their salvation. Here's the truth I need you to know this morning, if that's where you're at. If you love God and want to obey him, that wasn't your idea. You didn't figure that out. You didn't come to that conclusion on your own. The great God of the universe gave you a soft heart so that you might respond to him. That's the only reason why that's happened. And if you have come to a point where you love him and you want to obey him, regardless of how well you do the obeying, then you need to know that you're his that didn't come from you, it came from him. And so you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has chosen you, that you are his no matter what happens. And that's what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 8, right? He says that the reason that you can be confident that God's always working for your good, for he's always working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, he says, the reason you can be confident about that is because of God's electing love that foreknew and chose and predestined you to be a part of his family. He says in verses 34 through 39 that no one can condemn you and that nothing can separate you from his love, neither life or death or anything angels or demons, the present, the future, powers, heights, depths, anything in creation can separate you from the love of God. He says, no matter what happens to you or no matter what happens in you, no matter what you do, you cannot lose him because he cannot lose you. You can't lose him because he cannot lose you. And Paul's writing to a church in the midst of all kinds of difficulty and he says, you can be sure 
the reason you can be sure that you can't lose him is because it wasn't your decision for him in the first place. He foreknew, he predestined, he called you. And he did that before the foundations of the world. And so matter what you do, he's chosen you, you're secure. What Peter's trying to communicate is that God's choosing of us was not just some arbitrary choice. It wasn't just this idea anyone will do. No, what Peter's trying to communicate to these believers who are in the midst of all kinds of suffering, who feel like rejected exiles that no one wants and no one will pursue, what he wants them to know, what Peter wants those people to know from the very beginning of his letter is that they are wanted by God. They are chosen by him. He chose to direct his love, not just generally, but specifically for them. And Paul says in Ephesians 1 that he's done that so that he might be, they might be adopted to sonship. You see, throughout the Bible, God describes the nature of our relationship with him as through the lens of family language, and he uses the language of adoption all the time. And that's not by an accident. It's not just mere sentimentalism. It's this critical truth that fundamentally shapes the way that you relate to God. I was really, I remember years ago, I, I heard a pastor illustrate it this way. He said, he talked about how every adoption story is a little different, but, but no matter what, it'll be important one day for every child who's been adopted to know that story. He says it's something that shapes their understanding of who they are. And what every adoptive parent wants their children to know, he says, is that they are loved, they are wanted, and they are chosen. He goes on to say, but imagine if somehow an adopted child told their story this way. They said, you know, I grew up in a bad situation. I really didn't have any hope, and I didn't have any parents, and nobody was taking care of me. But I heard a rumor that there were these letters that had been scattered around my city. And one day, I finally found one of those letters, and it said, whoever finds this letter, we love you. And we want to be your child, and, and we know that you're a long way from, we're a long way from you, but we can't tell you enough how much we want you to be our child. So please, find a way to get to us. And if, we, if you can get to our house, then you'll be our child. No questions asked. We, we can't wait to meet you. So the child says, I, I was desperate, so I, I had to go. And after a crazy journey, I finally arrived at their doorstep, and a man opens the door who I've never met, and they introduced himself, and I hand them the letter, and, and they smile back at me, and they welcome home. Imagine how that story would absolutely destroy the heart of those adoptive parents. Because the, besides the fact that it's almost entirely untrue, that story makes their love look ridiculously weak and paltry. Think about it. In that story, the parents didn't want them in particular, anyone would do. And they would have been fine if no one ever came. And all they did was make themselves available. If you can just get there, then we'd accept you. But that's not the story of adoptions. That's never the story of adoptions. The real story sounds something like this. The parents say to the children, we saw you. We saw a picture of you or we met you. And before you were ever legally our child, we loved you. And we thought about you all the time and we prayed for you and we talked about you and we traveled back and forth and we spent our savings and we raised money so that we could get everything in order and we waited and waited and waited. And so the time finally came that we might come to bring you to be with us. And you didn't do anything. You, you couldn't have done anything. And you didn't have to. It was our joy to do all of it for you. You see, that is the story of adoptions. 
And that's why they are beautiful and compelling. It is the parent's love for a particular child, not just anyone. That is beautiful and profound. No matter the barrier, no matter the cost, they would overcome it to bring them home. That kind of story is powerful. Church, that is the story of the gospel. That's the same story. God tells us over and over again throughout the Bible and, and in First Peter as well that we're made his children by any effort of our own, but by his mercy and his grace. He, he doesn't just make a way for you generally. He didn't just make himself available in, 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 in scope. He, he didn't just scatter some letters hoping someone might find them and most of them didn't work and all you have to do is figure it out. That's not what happened. God directs his love before the creation of the world at those who do not deserve it and who could not earn it and would mess it up if they could. And when you believe the story that God's just open, that he sends out letters and whoever can find him will, will get to him, that's not good news. That doesn't highlight it, his love. It diminishes it. It cheapens it. See, for many people, the idea that God might choose who to save and who to love and who to adopt in his family, it seems like this terrible, horrific, unfair kind of thing. But if that's not true, then God's love is weak and pathetic and it is unenticing and undesirable and it certainly does not inspire you to give your life back to him. Oh, but when God's love has nothing to do with you, nothing to do with you finding him, but everything to do with him finding you and him choosing you and him loving you, then it's the good news that you need to live as Peter calls these people to as God's elect exiles in the midst of a world in which they feel desperately unwanted. See, and that brings us to the third way that God's sovereignty and salvation changes us. See, it compels us to proclaim the good news about Jesus and to do it confidently and faithfully. See, some people think that if God's sovereign over salvation, over people coming to know him and faith in him, then what is the point in telling people about Jesus? That just seems, you know, if God's in control of it, that it'll all work out, and I'm just like, I'm out, right? That seems like way harder work than I want to be in charge of anyways. And while that might make some logical sense, it doesn't make biblical sense. Just take Paul and Peter, the two guys who wrote the passages we've been studying this morning. God's sovereignty and salvation is something they both herald repeatedly. And it is, in fact, the very thing that fueled their lives, given to proclaim him to everyone. It's the thing that empowered them to endure hardship and to endure suffering so that people that God had chosen might come to faith in him. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is in Corinth and he's been preaching the gospel and people just keep rejecting him and ignoring him and not responding to him. And he's about to leave. He's, he's really fed up. And until in verse 9, God comes to him and speaks to him. And he says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He said, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. And so Paul was just about to leave because God says he has people for him who he's chosen in this city. goes on to say Paul stayed in Corinth for another 18 months teaching them the word of God. So you can guarantee Paul had no idea who those people were. He had no idea 
who the people that God had for him in that city were. And yet what he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt is that there were those who God had chosen who were waiting to hear and respond to Jesus. And so he stayed. It wasn't a discouragement to him. It was, a, it was his motivation to preach the gospel, even if that meant enduring suffering. You see, when God chooses people to be saved, he carries that out through human means. And God ordained the proclamation of the gospel to accomplish his purposes. And so when we share the gospel in a joyful obedience to him and in a hope that God who appoints the end, we trust that he also is the one who appoints the means by which people come to faith in him. I remember someone, uh, this quote, someone once asked Charles Spurgeon, he's a famous preacher from the turn of the century, he said, why do you preach if you believe in election, God's sovereignty and salvation? He says, because the elect don't have yellow stripes down their backs. He says, in other words, we don't know whom the elect are, whom God has chosen, and so we declare the gospel without discrimination, trusting that the sheep will recognize their master's voice. So God's sovereignty and salvation empowers us to proclaim the gospel faithfully. But it also empowers us to proclaim it confidently. See, God's sovereignty and salvation is the assurance that there are no people who are too hard that God cannot melt the ice or break the rock of their heart. There is no one for whom God's arms are too short to reach out and save. And so if God is sovereign over life and death and salvation, then we can trust him to bring our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and to make them alive to the truth of the gospel in his time. And what that means is we don't just wait around hoping something might happen, but we strive with all of his energy in the work that he's given us to live out the person, the work of Jesus and to proclaim him to others. You see, the Bible universally presents the idea of God's sovereignty and salvation as good news that humbles and encourages and motivates us. But for a lot of people, it doesn't do that. It's just this thing that kind of brings up nervousness and, and all kinds of things. And we, that's because we have these objections that keep us from seeing God's sovereignty and in salvation as the good news that it is. We hear all this talk about God's predetermining, electing work, calling God's working, how he's working everything out according to his plan. And the first thing that comes to our minds is like, well, what about my own free will? What about my own choices? We think if God's absolutely sovereign, then I'm just kind of a robot and I lose choice and responsibility. Or if God's not, or because I feel like I sure do have some choices, that God's not sovereign. But the Bible never pits those things together. We talked about last week how it consistently affirms both things that God is sovereign and that our choice for Him matters, that we need to choose Him. And the way God chooses to accomplish His purposes often through the vehicle of our decisions. It's not an either or, it's a both and. You see, the same Jesus who says that no one can come to Him unless the Father draws them is the same one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Now the reality is exactly how those two things coexist is a mystery. And I can't just lay it all out for you. I wish I could. That'd be really great. But that shouldn't surprise us because if God is as infinitely wise and complex as he describes himself to be, we began our whole sermon series by talking about how God is infinite. He's beyond our comprehension. And there are bound to be a few things that might seem contradictory but are not. 
In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer describes it, this apparent contradiction. He uses the word ant- antinomy. And the example that he uses is, is light. He says that we know that light sometimes behaves as waves and sometimes behaves as particles. And sometimes it acts as if it doesn't consist of matter and sometimes it acts as though it does. And we don't really understand exactly how that could be. It shouldn't actually work that way. We don't know how it works and we don't know why it works that way. But we, but we, but we just know that that is the way that it works and so we work with it. Otherwise, there's no way to understand how light works. There's no way to handle it. See, the nature of light isn't a real contradiction. It's just an apparent one. And we don't really have the knowledge yet to figure out exactly how that works. And I think the same is true here when it comes to the reality of God's sovereignty and salvation and our own choices. How those things coexist is a mystery, but that doesn't mean they're not compatible. You see, God has ordained it in such a way that there is a creature and creation divide. There's a line that with some things we are just not going to be able to cross. We have to be okay with that reality. That doesn't just mean endlessly having this blind faith in whatever happens, but it means trusting him that if some things seem contradictory, they might indeed be true. Paul Tripps, I I quoted this last week, he says it this way, God answers our desire to know and understand not by giving answers, but by giving us himself. He reveals to us his existence, his rule, his wisdom, his faithfulness, and his love so that we might experience peace and rest of heart even as we are faced with painful mysteries. And the more you come to know him and understand the character of his loving care, the deeper your rest becomes. Because ultimately, rest is not found in knowing, but in trusting the one who does. See, that leads to our other objection. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, you know what, fine. Maybe it is true that God chooses who will come into a saving relationship with him. I don't know, maybe that is true. But even if it is, it just seems radically unfair. And I will agree with you. It is unfair. It's unfair that God would actually choose anyone at all. That's what's unfair. Zero people in the history of ever deserve for the God of the universe to show grace and mercy to them. Zero ever. It would be completely fair for God to just reject everyone. And yet the fact that he saves anyone, let alone as Revelation 7 verse 9 tells us, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and tribe and people and language, that is a grace and mercy that is beyond our comprehension. It would be utterly fair for God to choose no one. But he chooses to save some, and it is all by his grace, for the praise of his glory, so that people who have no right or merit to be saved might come into a saving relationship with him for the reason of his, pur- for his own good purposes and the praise of his glory. That's it. See, and that's the message about God's grace that we're proclaiming every week when we take communion. We're reminding ourselves and one another about God's electing grace. How we deserve nothing but wrath and judgment for our sinful rebellion against him. But instead God chooses to send his son and to open our hearts and our minds so that we might see the gospel for the good news that it really is. 
And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. The Bible is clear that faith in the person and the work of Jesus, that's the one thing that makes you right with him. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember that when our hearts were hard towards him, in his grace and mercy, he made them soft. He enabled us to respond to him. And God directed his love at us and he predestined us that we might be adopted into his family. And so if you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel this morning, then I want to encourage you during our time in the back, during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Whether you're totally on the same page with me about how God's sovereignty and salvation works, or you think I'm crazy, but you still trust Jesus to be the one thing that makes you right with him, wherever you're at, then go back and take communion. Do it as a joyful celebration that it has everything to do with him and nothing to do with you. But if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, I want you to know how glad I am that you are here, but I would encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that responds in love for all that he has done for you. Not one that's trying to get something from him, but one that is responding to all that has been given. And so as we sing and as we worship and as you remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you to talk with God. How might beholding and believing in the good news of his sovereignty and salvation need to shape you? For some of you, God's sovereignty and salvation, it needs to humble you. Because when you look at people who don't know Jesus yet, you look at them with an attitude of superiority. And even if you might not articulate it that way, you look at people and just like, how can they not get it yet? How, how have they not figured it out? They're just boneheaded. And the reality of God's sovereignty and salvation should humble you to the floor and should fill you with a gracious humility towards others that reminds you that the only reason why you get it and they don't has nothing to do with your intellect, has nothing to do with your spirituality, but has everything to do with God's grace made known to you. And for some of you, it needs to humble you. For others of you, you need it to comfort you. You wrestle with this unsureness about your salvation and whether or not you're really in with God or not. And I need you to remind, remind you this morning if you love him and want to obey him, that's not your idea. That's his. And he's put that in your heart and you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's chosen you. And you cannot lose him because he cannot lose you. And for others of you, you need the reality of God's sovereignty and salvation to compel you. You need it to relieve the weight that comes from believing you, the weight of conversion of other people is on you. And you need to empower you with the reality that God's not tasked you with changing people's hearts or opening them in the first place. He's tasked you with praying for their salvation and with proclaiming it so they might know the truth. Obedience is your part. The rest, God has got. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. So let the sovereignty of God send out workers into his harvest full of confidence and boldness and joy in him. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for you and for your word this morning, and I know I've gone long. I pray, God, that you might be gracious to cause whatever I've said this morning that is from you to sink deeply into people's hearts, and whatever has been not helpful, God, I pray that you would just cause it to quickly pass. 
God, long that the good news of your electing, choosing love might be the good news you intended to be to us. And I want it to humble us and to encourage us and to assure us and to compel us. And so I pray, God, that you might cause those things to be true. God, I ask as well that you might give us, even with our own, within our own church and, and amongst our relationships with other Christians, a tone and posture of graciousness and humility in those that might hold a different position on, than us on these things. And you might help us most of all to worship you. Wherever, wherever we land on what, the way your sovereignty gets worked out, God, we pray that we might worship you, the great God who saves, who makes a way for us, without whom we have no hope. And so let us rejoice in you, proclaim you, and make much of you, Jesus, we pray. Amen.